Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? We are on part 15 of the Babel series. This is Tower of the Mushroom Cloud. Uh, think of the Tower of Babel as like the Manhattan Project, which is a great example because in the 1930s and 1940s, everyone on earth was speaking the same language of hyper-nationalism. Um, immense projects among the nations took place in this grand competition. And co competition is a word, of course, that is very endemic to the language of Babel. Uh, through that period, we found better ways in the 30s and 40s to, to kill one another than we ever had before. There was a huge technological advancements made, and many of them had to do with how to make other people stop breathing. So um, if you struggle to believe that demonic forces are at work in the world, I don't know how else you can explain what happened in World War II. You can ask, why did God allow it? But you should be asking, why did we? The problem of pain is always with us, but never was it so obvious as in that era. And it's still here right now. We can choose to sin or not sin. I would guess that if we lived in the era of way back in the great Assyrian Empire or any empire, we would observe horrors and atrocities. But the scale could not have been so massive as what was on full display in World War II when clearly demonic forces took over Germany. The goal to get rid of Jews is the first sign of demonic forces at work, just as it always has been. To get rid of God requires getting rid of those who speak of the one true God. So to overcome the great evil happening in Germany, another effort sprung up to create a massive bomb. And after all, we have to fight fire with fire, right? That is the common language of Babel. So in order for us to stop one country from engaging with demons, we all had to get together and do something that introduced an even larger problem into the world. So in New Mexico, a mini Babel story happened, uh, but this one ended with a horrific boom. Scientists came to New Mexico from different nations and spoke different languages, but they all used the same language of English for this one project, rallying around science and competition to defeat the common enemy. However, as we all know, the nations all speak the same underlying language, and that is this common language of Babel. But in this case, we had this brotherhood in arms to defeat a common enemy, making it much like a pre-Babel party in the southwestern United States. Uh, these thinkers put aside their own nationalism and joined together to take on a great project, a project any unlike any other before it, except for maybe the Tower of Babel, where we invited demons into the world. Um, okay, total war across the world led to a recruitment of the world's greatest minds to the desert. And however, this is one instance where going to the desert did not result in purified spirituality. The great minds of Oppenheimer and Fermi and Fuchs and Teller and Lawrence um, and others they did not go out to the desert like Moses and Jesus did or St. Anthony of Egypt. Uh, in fact, these scientists went to the desert to say yes to the devil instead of to do battle against his temptations. They joined speaking a common language to build a new gate to God in a way. They went to the desert to find out how God's universe works, but not out of curiosity regarding creation like a flower cataloging naturalist might or a beetle collector uh, but rather to figure out how to immolate and destroy those flowers. As God says in Genesis 11, while observing the tower construction, uh, they have started to do this, 
and nothing they presume to do will be out of their reach. Could we not also imagine God saying the same thing as he allowed Oppenheimer to tinker with Adams in Los Alamos? As Prometheus stole fire from the gods, so did our American Prometheus, which is a book about Oppenheimer. And by the way, uh, the myth where Prometheus is portrayed as doing a good thing by stealing fire um, is actually propaganda from the, the Silicon Valley of the ancient world. We have this idea stamped on us today that technology is always good, and we, we just pursue technology for technology's sake. There's a lot of technology out there just in search of a problem uh, to solve, which uh, many of it doesn't need to be solved. Um, this is what the Tower of Babel was doing. Um, it was trying to extract the secrets of God and the universe for our own dirty deeds. As Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them, in Matthew chapter 7, 15 to 20, verses 15 to 20. The fruit of the Enlightenment is a world of nuclear weapons, among other things like carbon dioxide gone wild. In the meantime, we call the old sustainable world of the agricultural Christendom the Dark Ages, um, we, we insult that era, those people who lived in that time. And while we scramble now to figure out how are we going to block or undo the problems created through our dogged pursuit of God's secrets. Um, if you don't think that's true, then I guess you, you have to explain how cars have caused climate change. Um, we know that's happening. We can see glaciers disappearing. Um, it's all a result of technological advancement. If we had stayed in the dark ages, we would not have climate change because we wouldn't have had uh, cars and things burning tons and tons of fossil fuels. So um, whenever we think we are so much wiser, we have to look at the problems that have been created by the sort of Prometheus myth uh, that everything we get is always better through technology. There's a fascinating exchange about this from two Orthodox priests um, that I'm stealing at length here about Prometheus, which also applies to the Manhattan Project. Uh, this is from the Lord of Spirits podcast, which is a great source for breaking through the walls of the modernist worldview that reigns in our media, that dominates all of our um, everything, books, publishing, uh, news, schools. Um, so these two priests, they take it all the way back to the fall of Cain, and they draw out the things we fail to notice in the dense meaning of especially the fall of Cain here. So just as you can't get to heaven without going through the cross, you can't get to Babel without first going through Cain. So I'm going to read a dialogue between Father Stephen and Father Andrew. So Father Stephen says, Cain founds the first city. That's in, that's, Cain is known as the person in the Bible who founded the first city. Um, the major figures in Cain's line who are named, it talks about the technological innovations that they produced, which are weapons of war, all of these things. So this idea is uh, that these spirits gave technology to man, but it was not to benefit man. They were giving man technology that humanity wasn't ready for, but for destroying themselves. And then Father Andrew says, Right, and this same story is played out in multiple other ancient mythologies. The one that probably most of our listeners are familiar with is Greek mythology, where you've got the story of Prometheus, who gives fire from the gods to mankind. But of course, in that story, it's depicted as Prometheus. It's correct in the sense that Prometheus is sort of rebelling. He's doing something he's not supposed to be doing, but it's presented as positive, like 
Look at this wonderful gift he gave mankind. But the problem, of course, is that it's propaganda. This is the demon saying, look at these good things we gave you. Why don't you just go ahead and bow down and worship us? If you think about that, isn't that the same thing that's happening when Christ is tempted by the devil, when the devil offers him stuff? The devil says, look, what I'll do for you if you just bow down and worship me. You know, even in our own lives, right? There's this promise of being great, being smart, being beautiful, being popular, being wealthy, being prestigious. If only you would serve whatever it is that you are asked to serve. And it's a trick. As, as you said, it's for their destruction. Notice when whom this technology is given to, in the Bible it's given to Cain, the first murderer, and to his descendants. But the problem, of course, is you look at this stuff and you say, what's wrong with ironworking or with music? What's wrong with, with that stuff? And Father Stephen responds, yes, and it get, gets expanded, firstly, in the Book of Jubilees to include all kinds of things in terms of pharmaceuticals and sorcery and means of seduction of the opposite sex. But even if we're just talking about raw technology again, it's not that it's evil any more than the tree of knowledge of good and evil is evil in and of itself. But it was wisdom for which humanity wasn't ready to use appropriately. So it comes to these men as, I'm giving you this knowledge so that you can use it to gain power and to conquer your neighbors, to set yourself up as a king, to seduce members of the opposite sex, so you will have this power and wealth and authority, and that's what humanity uses it for. Okay, that's the end of that dialogue between them. So in New Mexico, Prometheus returned with fire once again, and we were instructed in public school what a marvel this discovery was, where science and engineering saved us from Germany. I even recall watching a movie called Fat Man and Little Boy in science class as a kind of celebration of this event of the Manhattan Project. But science makes for a bad savior if it wins a battle by setting the stage for a much bigger and far worse for war in the future. That's not a savior at all. That's a captor. We are in the same boat now with other problems stemming from our rush and lust for technology, like cars that spewed carbon dioxide for a century and a generation of lost souls who were raised on iPhones. We're just beginning to start to see some of those issues. You might even argue that we haven't even figured out how to handle fire properly yet, let alone nukes or smartphones. The great scientific and engineering minds proved that the secrets of the atom were not out of their reach. What they presumed was possible became a reality. Uh, like Geppetto in Pinocchio, the dream to will an idea into existence turned Little Boy into a real atomic bomb. But it did not open a gate to God. The gate of fission was opened, bringing down a new kind of demon to us. The solution created a short-lived peace as the arms race and space race began. We found one of the great secrets of how God's universe functioned, the great minds, they had pulled God closer to earth and elevated humans, or so we thought, in the process. And the payoff of this was to be endless free energy, but it didn't pan out. We were just left with the bombs. Most of the nuclear power plants are being shut down today, while the warheads remain ready to fire. So in cracking the atomic code and creating what seemed like a gateway to the power of God, we ended up 
more like toddlers playing around with grenades in a crib. And at the end of the project, the scientists disbanded and returned to their universities, but the knowledge stayed and proliferated to the nations. And we now have the modern doctrine of MAD, mutually assured destruction. And this is the language of Babel fully articulated and played out to its logical conclusion. Competition and greed lead to a prison-like behavior among the inmates where you must dominate or be dominated. And as Gandhi may have said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So after the tower of the mushroom cloud was built successfully and displayed to the world in its awesome terror, the scientists newfound instructions for building this gate of the mush this gate to fission and tower of the mushroom cloud it trickled out to all corners of the world and now we have about 10 nations who have these giant firecrackers ready to destroy billions of people hinged on the decision of fallible people in leadership roles so we came together for a little while under a common goal to defeat nations clearly under demonic possession and how did we solve it by inviting demons to possess us to defeat one powerful nation speaking Babel, we got together and spoke Babel to create something even more awful. Then once the war ended, it seemed that nothing like that, that dramatic or awful could ever happen again. The nations then proceeded to ensure that it certainly will happen by building many, many, many more bombs. The nations are now nervously smiling at, each, at one another, meeting in uneasy groups, uh, wearing the fig leaves called NATO and the United Nations and the European Union, uh, and while they're holding loaded revolvers to each other's heads. So something interesting began to happen after the war, of course, where nationalism became a dirty word. The pendulum had swung to peak nationalism, and the reality of what the nations were capable of doing to one another began to look like a bad, bad idea. And we had many wars that followed that, that confirmed it. Another way of saying it is that the idea of, quote, the nations itself looked like a bad idea. Now the pendulum is swinging the other way back toward a sort of pre-Babel state where all the world was one nation before the Table of Nations idea. We are going back in time toward the days of Noah, which is not probably a good thing. There is a sense of inversion and reversal happening in quite a few parts of the Bible uh, most of the Christian message is an inversion of the pagan or pluralistic world, which is exactly what it means to unlearn this language of Babel. The separation of nations was reduced somewhat in the aftermath of, of World War II as large conglomerates formed by force for the most part. There was a period where the opposite direction of Babel seemed to happen, where nations were kind of congealing um, in some cases by force and others by legitimate like healing. Uh, and then while Russia used the sword, the West seemed to be in a state of repair for a while anyway, or at least the illusion of it. After the war, the Western nations thought it was obviously a bad idea to get caught up in nationalism and patriotism. We're still aware, wary of that. Germans have just recently started to even show, fly their flag um, that's been so long since they've... Uh, that wound is so deep of what happened. Uh, boundaries began to be removed or reduced to help foster cross-border trade and travel. So while the Eastern Bloc was being beaten into submission, the Western nations were coming together in a way, all while keeping a cold, steely eye on its enemies with 
uh, bristling with weapons the entire time. Um, there was a pre-Babel impulse called globalization that took shape and is still underway now. Uh, the lingua franca of the world became English, but underneath English was still the really old common language, that of competition and control and struggle for power. So even if the world became one nation, uh, again, as some people suspect is happening, there's plenty of conspiracies around that, uh, control would still be the underlying game. So now here's the question. Was all of this, was the 20th century and all of this things that, these things that happened, was that all part of God's plan? And the answer is apparently it was. Rather, it is because his plan is still happening right now. Now, as Peter said to Jesus about the Eucharist, this is a hard thing to accept, but accept it we must if we are to trust in God's will and his plan. If we are to make progress in the Christian life, total trust in Jesus and the body of Christ, his church is needed. We float on the sea in the ship of the church, singing songs and sharing the sacred meal while the storm rages around us. We just have to stop fighting within the ship itself. And there's a lot of that happening in the church, infighting. We must stick to sound doctrine, proper worship, and unwavering focus on Jesus because, as the Catechism says, the great trial is coming, and we already know that it's coming. So we need to stick together and stick to sound doctrine. To stop speaking Babel, we have to start speaking Pentecost. And I'm not talking about making nonsense noises or gyrating around on the floor or handling snakes and doing weird things. I'm talking about the process of letting go, forgiving, and not needing to win. I'm talking about doing what is right even when the world says it's wrong. And I'm talking about turning away from that game, the power struggle in particular. We now face the same pluralistic world that the apostles did with the added threat for bonus points of nuclear annihilation and cyber war of shutting down our energy grids. Now this should not make Christ's followers angry. Uh, we should actually be overjoyed as always because death has no sting. As I mentioned, Jesus did not get angry at the lost sheep. He went out to save them. And that is the same task now as it was the task then. If the world intends to blow itself up, then that is God's will for reasons unfathomable to us. Our commission is not winning the war with guns, ours is fighting the spiritual war. The same weapons are to be used to believe, to be baptized, to pray, to fast, and to sin no more, and to keep his commandments, and to go and make disciples of all the nations. The harvest is enormous now, but the laborers are few. What else is new? Today we are all speaking the same language in both English and that of Babel. The language is that of competition and pride, shame and honor. Whether or not capitalism or communism won, this language of the culture would be the same, and communism just happens to have a higher body count. We don't seem to have been scattered again, not just yet. We have the means to self-scatter now through these mega weapons, but there will be a different kind of scattering soon, and it seems there is a scattering or atomization now happening as we lose focus on our families and the nation itself, and we move into the isolated world of technology where we live in a cold kingdom known as my truth. We are living right now in the post-Manhattan project, post-Cold War, the era of globalization, and as the world comes together in consolidating nations, 
we grow further apart in our families and communities. Uh, we are going backward. We're actually going backward toward the Big Bang that happened at Babel before the scattering, when everyone spoke the language of Babel and understood each other. We are going back toward the era before the nations, but I don't think it will be what we expect or want when we get there. And I know it won't be if we try to do it without God's blessing. You might say that technology is the tool that allows us all to communicate with the same protocols today. What this means, however, is that we are returning to a state of pluralism, not worship of the one God. Thus, we are not only going back in time toward Babel, we are going further back to the time of Noah. In fact, with the advent of the internet since 1995, you could say we've already passed the time of Babel and are now hurtling toward the state of the world when Noah and his family were the last ones standing after the flood. And if we go that far, we may be going back further still to the state of the world where God saw the flood as necessary to cleanse the world. As God said in the flood story, he would never again drown the world. He said he wouldn't use water the next time, but he didn't say anything about fire. Jesus, on the other hand, said something concerning, uh, very concerning, as we observe our world spinning into chaos, becoming more and more like the days of Noah before the flood. And this is from Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and carried them all away. So will it be also at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be out in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on which day your Lord will come. Be sure of this, if the master of the house had known the hour of night when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. So too, you also must be prepared, for at an hour you do not expect, the Son of Man will come. So stay awake, I guess is the, be prepared, Those are that's some good advice. If you are short on time, if you are short on time, you really only need the first three chapters in Genesis to get the main point of the fall in the Bible. Many people of great faith can stop at Genesis 3 and take a time machine, machine to leap ahead to the Gospels. Many understand all they need for their faith to thrive with that alone. And this saves them the burden of trying to slog through Leviticus and Numbers too. All of what you need to know is in the first fall in the garden. And while the living God may be hard to make sense of in those early pages of the Bible, the clarity of that living God comes fully alive in Jesus in the Gospels. And if you read the Gospels and reread them and read them for the rest of your life, you will see that Jesus is God over and over. Or you at least have to wrestle with the idea that Jesus is God because he says it over and over. It's important to actually read the Gospels and not take what a YouTube personality says it is or what I say it is, especially one that doesn't know especially when someone who doesn't know what sin actually is or what Jesus considers that to be. Um, that's why I always refer to the catechism here. That is 2,000 years of knowledge and wisdom being built up and preserved as the deposit of faith. 
you have to read or hear the words of a man of Jesus who cannot be explained, this person who can perform miracles and doesn't sound crazy somehow when he claims that he is the living God. This can and be, you can do read it all alone, but it's best done in your church with those who are trying to also unlearn the language of Babel and learn the language of Christ. You unlearn it by spending time with the gospel and pondering lines like these that he says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Another one is I and the father are one. A third one is, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? So you have to decide if Jesus is God. If you have heard the words of the gospel, you must respond to it. While Jesus is making these claims, you have to compare his claims against the fact that sin and disorder and suffering are in the world and compare his message to that reality. What do you make of a God who came here to suffer like us, to be like us, to partake in the same pain and suffering that we experience? That to me is far more powerful than some self-help book that peddles worn out platitudes of be yourself. If you want your suffering to be transformed into something meaningful, Jesus Christ is the only God that can show you how that is actually possible. The reason why Genesis keeps striking people every generation as true in each passing century is because of observable facts of history and more importantly, the experience of our own journeys. The story of life is on repeat. We all suffer. It's unavoidable. The question is, how are you going to deal with it? Will you take revenge? Will you run away or will you look to Christ for the answer when you cannot stand another day, another hour, another moment when you need help? Chaos waits to rise in our lives. It will rise. We see order in nature, but we see disorder in people. What is the answer to handling this chaos? Well, I've tried to summarize the Bible in four lines. Here's the first. Here's my first attempt. Nature is ordered. People are not. We need a savior. Enter Jesus. The end. That's four lines. Okay. Or maybe this one is better. Nature is ordered. People are not. We need a savior. Jesus is God. The end. There. That, that gives us the creation, the fall, the problem, and the solution without the need to carry around a large book. Uh, the ordering and disordering of our world is a constant obsession with us, especially when we think we are the ones putting things in order. Dictators and tiger mothers have an extremely high sense of order, but while both attempt to cram their world into a box and shape it, everything they stuff inside gets damaged. And why is that? It's because they are not God, but they are assuming that role. The root motive for every dictator is the same uh, as every sports fanatic parent, which is to win, to be the best, and therefore be justified, and therefore be proud, and therefore feel finally loved. That's what they really want. Actions taken out of pride are cries for help to be loved and approved. If only they knew that the love is available without all the struggle, that they can be loved without winning, even without any effort. No matter how you chop up the story, the root problem of disordered choices is pride. Adam, Cain, Babel. All three falls stem from pride of self over humility before God. 
The worldview of Babel is simple when you burn off all the slag on top of it. The word is competition. Now there is competition in nature, but not like that of humans. Survival of the fittest does not explain the Empire State Building. It does not explain the heart of darkness in humans that goes far beyond that of plants fighting for sun or wolves scrapping for the alpha spot. Plants and animals stop consuming and fighting when they get the food or the high ground in the genetic race. Uh, when nature becomes unbalanced, it balances out again. Whereas we do not. We do not. Jeff Bezos continues amassing wealth long after he had enough, long after he could have stopped and started giving it to other people. Coca-Cola didn't stop spewing out plastic bottles once we all noticed it has created a horrid mess, and nor did they stop shoving sugar at people once obesity became an absolute epidemic. So to win, you have to maintain the attitude of to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. So money, fame, sex, power, honor, these are a few of our favorite things. And once tasted and chosen, there is never enough, never enough. Addicts don't quit wanting the thing that makes them miserable. The competition is on. If we are not playing ourselves, then we cheer it on. The language of empire seeks a victory, winning, getting a better deal, finding a loophole, getting away with something. And when this is your worldview, it devolves gradually into this. Rules for thee, but not for me. And why is that? Because winning. Because we want to get what we want. Because the need to win overrules morality and fair play. That is the whole game. And once you start to realize the winners are cheating, then the jig is up. Hasn't the Olympics and the Tour de France races taught us this repeatedly in recent decades? Uh, hasn't every hero athlete who was later revealed as a dope user shown us this fact? Uh, didn't the Houston Astros show us how winning the World Series has less to do with talent and hard work than finding a better way to cheat? Um, didn't the Inflategate and Spygate and every other gate scandal show us that the culture of competition leads to a downhill slide? <laughs> Likewise, hasn't every empire that ever existed cheated and brawled its way to success and then painted itself as an honest and plucky hard worker? The Romans picked Virgil to write the legend of their path to glory in the Aeneid. America had Lincoln and Washington and Jefferson to sell the narrative. There is a maxim that behind every fortune lies a great crime, and that, that applies to nations as well. And what does all of this tell us? It does not tell me that we need to overthrow the government or adopt a socialist government as it does to some today. No, it tells and retells me that the shiny one whispers ideas into our ears and we agree. We nod all too willingly, eager to win, with a chaser thought close behind of how we'll craft our mischief into an obstacle that we had to overcome. We'll sell sin to ourselves as a virtue. The secret sauce of all success is to tell a story that spins our sin into gold. And you can hear this small talk everywhere, even though I may only hear it in America today, the same choice of wealth and pleasure over humility before God was obviously the attitude in Babel. The line in the Tower of Babel story states it like the unspoken intention of every LinkedIn profile. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower on its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. That is the language of Babel. 
How do you make a name for yourself? How does it happen? It does so by winning, by getting ahead, by stepping on the guy's head who is directly beneath you and pulling on the lady's leg who is directly above to climb over them, by using whatever means necessary to get something more than the guy in the next cubicle. The language that was used in Babel was that of competition. You might even say it was more of a feel or a vibe than a language. America was not founded entirely on the principle of competition in the pit, but along the way, the city on a hill metaphor morphed into the Tower of Babel. Every person and people must make a choice, and this is a choice that defines their life in the end. We think of choices and belief as small, as not mattering all that much, but what you believe factors into nearly every single decision you make. There's a saying of how you do anything is how you do everything. That quote causes me to shudder sometimes as I know how my lack of attention to detail could land me east of Eden forever. And if you don't believe my lack of attention to detail is true, surely you find plenty of grammar mistakes and missing semicolons or periods or quotes in this. And you certainly don't find many citations in anything that I write. <laughs> uh, belief matters. Belief matters, though. And the quote could be, what you believe drives how you do everything. So the first quote was, how you do anything is how you do everything. But what you believe drives how you do everything. Belief drives action, and action drives belief. That's why you do both. This is the faith and works argument in a nutshell. What you believe is only shown by what you do, and what you do proves what you believe. So let faith in Christ become the center of all events in your life. Do not waver and do not look away. Peter sinks in the water because he gets scared when the wind comes up. He looks away. So he's, he's trying to take over. He's trying to control the situation. I think the lesson is to stop being yourself. Put aside the modern, modern nonsense of your own specialness and uniqueness and be special for someone else. You know, call your mother, go visit an old person. The only thing that is holding you back is your personal goals, and those should be examined. Stop chasing the pipe dreams and be like Christ and see Christ in others. Let the rituals of the mass guide your days and revel in the fact that you can partake physically in the body and blood of Christ. Not only can you imitate Christ, you can be physically formed to him. The choice of who we believe in can be seen in the language we speak and in the actions we take. Remember that, most of all, this choice is not shown externally. The choice must be made in the heart. So pray to God that he reaches to you, asking for his spirit to be sent to you. The only thing you can offer to God in trade is your whole life, and he wants you to ask. He likes you. He's waiting. You can either ask, or he will ask you, and it usually works out best if you ask first. Because humility is when you ask him, and humiliation is when he is done messing around, hinting, and asks you directly. Shoot for the first option. Ask him to find you with this line. Say, draw me, Lord, and we will run. All right, that's the end of this episode of Why Did Peter Sink? We'll be back with one more part of this series in a few days. Thanks for listening. <laughs>